Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. Today we're tackling a topic that has an impact on warfare, global counterterrorism, political risk, cryptocurrency, and banking. And that's just the beginning of the list. A few months ago, a friend and Altamar guest, DJ Peterson, suggested we look at open source intelligence as a topic. At first, we didn't know what that was, but as we researched the issue, we found a fascinating and daunting topic that has grown in public understanding since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Today, we're going to be joined by Arthur Bradley, one of the top experts on this topic. So, Peter, I have to publicly admit that in the beginning, I was very ambivalent about this topic for our podcast because it felt dry and technical. But what did I know? It is not that at all. OSINT, as it is called, affects every angle of our lives. So let's try to break it down first. It's both more complicated and simpler than it sounds. It is actually the act of gathering and analyzing publicly available data for intelligence purposes, captured by any methods, anything from public news stories, geolocated photos, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you call polls, raw data. It, it even includes GPS tracking and overheard conversations. And the sources are really unlimited and all encompassing. And now what the, the value added is it serves efforts against terrorism, and we will talk about that. Analysts take all this information and all these sources for a specific end, including checking for security leaks on open channels. The use we understand best is using OSINT to identify external threats and combing the dark web. But bad actors use it, of course, to plan and target networks, hacking, cyber terrorism, and companies benefit from it in employee screening, a little bit scary in terms of privacy, but social media campaigns, competition research. And of course, the added value, again, goes into the analytics and the strategic operation that comes next. And this goes way beyond Google and Twitter and requires high-level teams and very sophisticated technology. Okay, so here's an example of OSINT from the front lines in Ukraine. During Russia's invasion, OSINT was used to monitor Russian troop movements. How did they do that? Well, Russian soldiers were using their cell phones to post pictures, tweet, and message friends and family. Their GPS locations were available on their photos and texts, letting Ukraine's intelligence operatives know exactly where they were located and where the Russian soldiers were moving to, to devastating effect. Russian soldiers are now no longer allowed to take their phones with them in battle. Here at Altamar, we're specifically interested in the impact of OSINT on geopolitical risk. Intelligence gathering is not new, and it's ex exploded with the internet. Some people trace it back to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the creation of the Foreign Broadcast Monitoring Service, but it was only after 9-11 that it was legalized in the U.S. and assigned to the Director of National Intelligence. And there's many, many recent events where OSINT provided information and disinformation that exacerbated global tensions, wars, and new alliances. It's something now that needs to be taken into account in geopolitics everywhere. Let's give examples. COVID and its weaponization, Russia washing its bloodshed via the web, the impact on elections around the world. We've talked about that at length on Altamar. Cyber attacks from China, the planning of terrorist threats around the world. Basically, 
everything that can be used for good is used for good. And the opposite is also true. Our guest just published a very comprehensive study of the use of OSINT and terrorism and extremism and the growth of their online capabilities, which is very concerning. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So simply stated, open source intelligence, as you mentioned, Moni, is the intelligence collected from the sources which are open to the public. So it, it also took me a moment to wrap my head around it. The rise of open source intelligence has really transformed the, the way people receive news, right? So you you use it all the time. I use it all the time as well. You just don't think about how transformational it is in the context of history. So, I mean, just think about it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, how did you consume your news, right? You probably paid for cable or bought the newspapers and, you know, before the internet and then social media, open source intelligence was was not really a thing. And now it very, very much is. And that became really clear at the start of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. And in the run-up to the war, you know, commercial satellite imagery and video footage of Russian convoys on TikTok and uh, Snapchat and et cetera, allowed journalists and researchers, in addition to uh, intelligence agencies that you mentioned, Peter, uh, you know, journalists and researchers were really able to corroborate these Western claims that Russia was preparing an invasion. And someone in California actually used Google Maps road traffic reports to identify a jam on the Russian side of the border at 3.15 a.m. on February 24th. And they actually tweeted and said, someone is on the move. And less than three hours later, Vladimir Putin launched the war. So it's really this democratization almost of you know open source intelligence and intelligence in general. And you know, open source is undoubtedly have limitations, right? So the images that emerged from Ukraine did so with unusual speed, in part because these, you know, euphoric residents were very keen to take and upload this footage. But on average, it takes one to three days for an image to circulate widely and to be geolocated. So open sources also entail a form of survivorship bias. For example, you know, tanks hit by anti-tank missiles are much more likely to be caught on video than those struck by mines in the Ukraine, uh, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So, but however, a big chunk of Ukrainian tank losses are from mines. So the self-deception in a way is a, is a real problem. And you know what I mean? I mean, how would you feel if you got, you know, all your news from social media alone, right? And, and comparing this to just getting your intelligence from open source intelligence alone. So, if you just consume news from from social media, you feel like the algorithm is really only showing you what you want to see or read. And that's that's kind of the same thing, right? Where certain intelligence agencies use about 20% of open source intelligence for their processes. And many experts are saying it will likely go up quite a lot. So here's my take. We're entering a new era with open source intelligence available to all and artificial intelligence improving at a rapid pace and changing ways in which we consume and produce news and content. And we're entering a completely new chapter in intelligence gathering and also, of course, in national security. So I'm very curious what you think about this and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. 
So let's move to our guest, Arthur Bradley, a true expert on the subject. Arthur Bradley is the open source intelligence manager at Tech Against Terrorism, a UN-backed public-private partnership that works with the global tech industry to counter terrorist use of the internet while respecting human rights. He also oversees content collection for the terrorist content analytics platform, an automated alert tool that flags content to platforms in near real time. His background is in security intelligence with a focus on terrorist propaganda. Perfect guest for this topic. Arthur, it is a great pleasure to have you on Altamar. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start at the very beginning. This is a new subject for many people. Can you define open source intelligence for our listeners, how it originated as a trade and why it is suddenly such an important tool for understanding geopolitics? Sure. So I guess the clue is in the name a little bit. Open source intelligence is essentially intelligence that's based uh, on the collection of information from publicly available sources. So it essentially comprises sifting through the vast amounts of visible information to find those needles in the haystack, um, finding value and actionable intelligence and information that others might not think to focus on or analyze. It goes quite a long way back, you know, during World War Two, for example, it was quite common for the UK government or other governments to access foreign media and propaganda, helping them to keep track of developments during the Cold War, for example, um, or the downfall of the Soviet Union. But at that time, the majority of intelligence was more covert in nature, um, relying on human sources and techniques like wiretapping. But really in line with uh, the increasing proliferation of data and the internet, open source intelligence or OSINT has increasingly kind of complemented covert intelligence. And intelligence practitioners are increasingly focusing on the wealth of information that's already out in the public domain. But I should also say that although kind of the majority of open source intelligence relates to the internet, it's not just the internet, but obviously the, the kind of ubiquity of the internet in everyone's lives mean that it's often the predominant information source. And really, there's so much information out there if you know where to look, uh, and it kind of provides endless potential for valuable intelligence. Where did OSINT succeed? There, what are the, the really good news stories of the use of this uh, methodology to, to do good? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I guess first I can talk about my employer. So Tech Against Terrorism, um, you know, we, you've int introduced us already, but really we focus on supporting the tech sector uh, in kind of understanding and responding to terrorist exploitation of the internet. Um, I manage the OSINT team. Um, so we are kind of on the front lines tracking and analyzing terrorist exploitation of the internet. Really, the intelligence that we produce um, aims to assist tech companies and governments on the latest tactics and strategies that terrorist groups are, are using to kind of remain active online and, and to recruit and spread propaganda, including things like the latest platforms that they might be using or the ways that they might be evading com uh, content moderation. So in a way, our expertise is like a niche form of OSINT, um, focusing on a specific type of adversary. But our work really has contributed to, you know, we, we, we facilitate the removal of thousands of pieces of legal terrorist content um, from hundreds of online platforms every month. Um, we kind of help to document war crimes uh, and kind of submit that kind of evidence to, to Western authorities. Um, and we also, you know, disrupted a number of imminent acts of violence um, via reports to the authorities. In terms of why it's different, really uh, to kind of, tackle this kind of adversary, you need to know the knowledge and software to protect yourself. 
Um, so in some respects, the bar for entry is lower. And also our expertise is kind of partly uh, based on the specialist knowledge of the behavior of terrorist actors online. So their logo, slang, iconography, and kind of the dog whistles that they might be using. Um, other examples of kind of really great OSINT work um, that kind of I'd recommend the listeners to look into if they're not already aware. You know, things like there's a brilliant investigation by BBC Africa Eye in 2018, um, looking at an incident of war crimes by kind of the Cameroonian military. Um, really, they managed to kind of prove the Cameroonian government wrong when they said that this incident was fake news. Really clever kind of geolocation um, work there. Likewise, you know, the use of satellite for imagery, um, things like the Uyghur concentration camps in Xinjiang, um, and all the work that Bellingcat are doing, um, you know, the downing of flight MH17 in 2014, or the kind of attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal in the UK in 2018. So it seems that the OSINT has kind of blossomed in, in, in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How has it served the cause in favor of Ukraine, but then we also know that it has helped Russia's ultimate goals? Yeah, for sure. I mean, from the very start, um, the ability to use open source information for intelligence has uh, kind of benefited and, and threatened both sides. Now, even before the in, in invasion, um, journalists and investigators were able to kind of corroborate the reports that Russia was planning an invasion by tracking uh, the kind of military movements towards the border. And definitely there's examples of open source intelligence on both sides of the war. To think of a kind of a specific example, in August 2022, uh, a kind of telegram channel associated with the Wagner Group shared a post on, on Telegram showing their fighters um, in a specific location in, in Ukraine. Uh, and I think within a few days, that site was was hit with an air, Ukrainian airstrike. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a clear example of really an OPSEC failure um, by that group, but also an opportunity um, on the Ukrainian side. I think also OSINT is, is proving critical in disproving some of Russia's disinformation around, for example, the war crimes in Bucha and other areas. Um, and this has included, um, you know, I think New York Times has, has done a study on this and organisations for the Centre for Information Resilience. And then in our work at, at Tech Against Terrorism as well, we're looking at um, mostly far-right extremism on the pro-Kremlin side uh, and also um, private military companies. Um, it's quite clear from the online networks affiliated with them that they're actively monitoring the online footprint of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians based there. So, as I say, both sides are, are very aware of their own operational security um, and, you know, they kind of delay posting of images that might be geolocated. And as it happens, this is something that groups like Islamic State do in their propaganda as well. You know, as I was listening to you, I'm just, just, it was, what was coming to my to my head was exactly this issue of far right act activism that we're seeing. We've you know obviously here in the United States we had the uh, insurrection on the Capitol, but in Brazil recently uh, there was the attack on uh, on Brasilia, the government buildings. And I, I'm just wondering, is that an OSINT failure? Because it seems like both of these things came out of nowhere and surprised people, and yet I hear you also saying that you know, these things are relatively easier to track now. What what happened in those cases, for example? Very good question. Um, I think often with these kind of incidents, it's it's often extremely obvious in hindsight. And actually in the build-up to a lot of these kind of incidents, you know, a lot, certainly in the US case, a whole load of experts were kind of warning about this for a very long time. 
Um, and likewise, the perpetrators were quite open about their plans um, to, to storm the capital. I would say, you know, in terms of the far right extremism, one challenge that we have in our kind of monitoring of terrorist communications and threats is that it can be very difficult to differentiate between kind of, I don't really like the word keyboard warriors, but there's a lot of uh, bluster uh, in, in, in the messaging of those kind of networks, and it can be difficult to differentiate between the two. Um, but certainly, I mean, there's so much information out there. Unfortunately, extremists and terrorist networks can be quite ubiquitous across a whole load of different platforms, and it can be very difficult to pick up everything. So how do you sift through this vast amount of information like uh, you know again you to your point of uh what, what did you call them the the keyboard warriors um how do you figure out what's real what's not real who, who is responsible for being the mediator of all of this to try to understand what's real and what's not real yeah this is really at the heart of challenge of of the work that we're doing um clearly there's so much information out there so it's important before going kind of starting an investigation to have a really clear idea of what you're hoping to achieve um with your in investigation so i'd say there's five kind of steps of the OSINT intelligence cycle so first really important is planning and direction so what kind of information do you need um where and how might you go about finding it and and what are you really hoping to accomplish Secondly is obviously the gathering, so going out and finding the information that you're looking for. And then you've got the analysis and dissemination before the feedback. Um, but in terms of sifting through the information, I think a key aspect to OSINT is the wealth of tools at your disposal to make the process more efficient. There's a massive range of tools out there. You know, they can be as basic as something like a Google search engine or, you know, other search engines, different search engines give you, give you different results. Um, all the way up to expensive technical software that helps you scan the web for the information that you're looking for. You'll never know all of them, so you can be doing OSINT for 10 years and you're still learning kind of new tools and methods to do it. So that's kind of part of the fun of this kind of work. So I, I wanted to also follow up on this, Arthur, which is, you know, like the who's responsible piece. I mean, we did an episode um, on Altamar about, you know, the Brazil insurrection, if we can call it that. And um, Twitter had fired a lot of its content monitoring at just ahead of that. Um, and, you know, that would have probably helped with sort of the OSINT monitoring of um, what was going on in terms of, you know, the extremists. So like, how would you think about that in terms of who's responsible for monitoring that and how much do companies play a role in that and how can they be held accountable i guess yeah it's again it's a very good question um at least in the counterterrorism space it's very important that there's a kind of multi-stakeholder approach to this clearly governments should be ideally on top of this um but it takes a lot of resources to be kind of picking up all of these threats online um, and likewise, you wouldn't want the government to be kind of comprehensively monitoring the internet, right? So we we describe ourselves as a public-private partnership. So um, what that really means in practice is that we work with all of the stakeholders in the industry. Um, we work with governments, we work with social media companies, we work with academia and civil society. Um, and then we also work with kind of industry coalitions like the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. But in terms of who's responsible, yeah, NGOs like us, certainly platforms have a role to play. They have their own kind of threat intelligence team and content moderators that are looking at this kind of material. 
governments clearly, law enforcement and academia. I think it should be all kind of all of those should be contributing to it. But I'm really skeptical of the idea that we should be placing that kind of burden of responsibility on platforms. It should really be you know, democratically elected governments and law enforcement. This could potentially be an opportunity just to plug uh, something that we're working on, which is, um, you know, mentioned the terrorist content analytics platform. As part of that, we do crisis response. So in, in kind of live stream terrorist attacks or any kind of terrorism related incident with an online dimension, um, we are kind of rapidly alerting that material. Um, and as part of that, we have a kind of trusted flagger scheme to kind of encouraging the community to be able to flag that content as well um, to make it easier for that. And just give us a sense of where this is going and in particular, how how widespread will be the use of OSINT and how do you guard against bias? Like, I, I don't know, if I would get my n news only from social media, as Teo was saying to us earlier, uh, you know, I'd be biased i'd get only biased news and so how do you protect against bias and OSINT? so in terms of where OSINT is going I, I think it's only going to continue to grow um really the, the the more digital technology we have the greater the volume of information that's out there i think it's only going to you know the importance of OSINT is only going to continue to grow i think though that you know things like artificial intelligence are going to present uh both opportunities and challenges for OSINT. Um things like chat GPT, you know, could potentially already be helping to make investigations a bit more efficient. Um I think I'm right in saying that that kind of uh software has read about ten percent of the public internet. So it's useful uh potentially as a tool to help dig up and summarize information on any given topic that you might be investigating. Um Obviously, the concerns about AI organizations like Tech Against Terrorism will, will you know, will be using our open source intelligence uh, teams to kind of monitor for potential misuse or unintended consequences of these kind of systems as they develop. I think also there's going to be more challenges. You know, for me, we're we're monitoring hundreds of platforms for terrorist exploitation, and I feel like every week there's a, a platform or two that pops up a new platform. So it's just continually more difficult. Um, we're having to be more aware of and kind of proficient in using a, a number of different online platforms and services. And it's not just social media. So it's not just the Facebooks and Twitters of the world. It's also fintech, alternative tech, messaging apps, crowdfunding services, file sharing, you name it, domain infrastructure. Um, so it's getting more and more complex, um, but I think it's only going to continue to grow. In terms of bias, um, I mean, clearly there's a there, there is an issue uh, in terms of filter bubbles online, I kind of on a personal basis and to some extent skeptical of how new that is. Um, you know, if you consider before the days of the internet, people would only consume their news from probably one newspaper that was delivered through their door every day. So I think there's, there's a limitation to the extent that that's like a new phenomenon, um, although perhaps it's slightly kind of accelerated online. But in terms of bias, it's just extremely important that you're able to be aware of your own potential biases and also that you're getting your information from kind of balanced sources really to ensure that. So I think there's always going to be a human element to it. So Arthur, you mentioned quickly uh, about governments and using um, OSINT in their, in their foreign policy. Isn't that dangerous as the world retreats from democracy um, th that these countries or some countries can use all of this strategic intelligence um, for 
for to do harm and then kind of what what i'd like to know is who are the the dominant the dominating countries in in the use of this informative intelligence and uh, how proportional is that to the level of democracy and rule of law in their governments yeah very good question um the impression that i get is that open source intelligence is pretty widespread um within governments Clearly, you know, police investigations are, are likely to include some kind of open source intelligence investigation and, of course, intelligence agencies. I think it's very difficult to know for sure, you know, which countries are using it more than others. Certainly, it doesn't, it's not um, restricted to just democratic countries or potentially repressive countries. I think they're all using it. Generally, we obviously hear, hear more about the work of more kind of public investigators and organizations like the one that I work for, uh, who kind of publish their open source intelligence findings or publicly speak about their results so yeah i think it's pretty widespread um but it's difficult to comment on who's who's using it more than others and what about the relationship between uh, mining all of this intelligence and human rights and human like and privacy uh, you you say in in you know as you describe your company that that that's a, a big priority how do you protect individual liberties in this process yeah it's it's clearly there's a risk that open source intelligence uh, kind of infringes on privacy, um, even if it's not uh, breaking any laws. I think from our point of view, there are three main considerations to have um, when we're kind of carrying out this kind of investigation. Um, one is on proportionality. So what's the scope of the investigation and potentially the data that you're looking to collect? Um, and is it proportionate to the desired outcome? Secondly, is it necessary? Um, so we're only looking at things that are necessary um, to the kind of research question that we're looking to address. And then thirdly, quite on quite a basic level, um, the legality, is it with the confines of the law? So in the work that we do, we focus, to be honest, quite narrowly um, on illegal activity. So we're, we're primarily looking at actors that have been designated by the major democracies. So, um, you know, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda and a number of far right designated organizations or the perpetrators the perpetrators of, of terrorist attacks. So, um, you know, mass shooters and that kind of thing. We're, we're also not using kind of wide ranging automated tools that are crawling large amounts of data, it's very targeted investigations. So we're only looking at things that are re relevant to our kind of investig investigatory goals. I also think it's worth pointing out really the, the positive aspects of open source intelligence to the upholding of human rights. Some of the examples I talked about earlier on, you know, it's kind of democratizing the ability to highlight human rights abuses um, using open sources. So really, I think it's probably more positive for human rights, particularly if it's being carried out by kind of responsible individuals when it comes to kind of undermining the false narratives of repressive governments. So I want to follow up on the democratization of, you know, sort of open source intelligence in a way. And you mentioned also, you know, you have new platforms popping up every day. I mean, give us a crystal ball analysis of, you know, where do you see this, um, this going in the next, you know, five to 10 years, how, how do we approach this open source intelligence and how can we as regular citizens contribute to that as well? Yeah. I mean, as I say, it, I think clearly the tech sector is continuing to grow. Uh, it's being increasingly diversified. Um, I think that's both in terms of the product offering and also potentially the kind of, uh political leanings of, of those different companies and platforms 
So I think it's going to be probably increasingly fragmented, which is good for kind of competition purposes. But yeah, from from the perspective of open source intelligence, it's not like you're operating on money what any one platform. Just as any individual doesn't just use one platform, people are operating across um, all sorts of different services, and they're, they're linked to each other. So I think it's getting uh, kind of increasingly complex. That said, you know, I mentioned the trusted flagger scheme that we have. Um, I don't think I would encourage every single person in the world to go uh, kind of tracking terrorist use of the internet because you definitely need to know what you're doing. Um, but I think the joy of OSINT can be the kind of crowd sourcing aspect of it. Um, there's a very kind of positive open source intelligence community. Um, it's quite common for people to share tips uh, and resources and pe- even ask questions and get, get answers to those questions in a kind of community way. So I think that's really powerful. So, Arthur, we, we, we've spent some time talking about geopolitics, about sort of how warfare changes, how terrorism. But what about business? How, how do, how, what's the role of OSINT in, for corporations? And give us some examples of companies who've used this for branding, global reach, market research, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So, I mean, I personally haven't worked in business intelligence, although I did previously work in a more corporate setting, still looking at terrorism. Um, and in that role, that was more kind of security intelligence for our clients. So, for example, if a, let's say we're working with a hotel chain looking to open up a new branch in, uh, I don't know, southern Iraq, for example, we might give them a security assessment, um, a kind of quantitative statistics on the risk of terrorism and other forms of violence there. Um, but clearly, there's a much more kind of corporate need for it. So I think it's quite common for companies to have uh, open source intelligence as part of looking at competitors' operations, branding, marketing strategy, also kind of penetration testing their own operational security. So they could potentially be red teaming themselves to find information um, that they might not realize is publicly available um, to, tr- to kind of try and remove that. Also potentially monitoring security threats to the organization and personnel. So it's kind of similar to what I used to be doing. I think it's also, you know, another another potential use could be um, kind of carrying out open source research or open source intelligence for pre-employment checks, quite a kind of mundane use for it. Um, or they might potentially hire firms to investigate potential new clients uh, before engaging in business with them. So last question, we're running running out of time. It's fascinating. Is I presume this is really changing journalism uh, and how journalists work, how they investigate, how they how they sort of have to be careful about bias. Uh, how, how do you, you work? Your organization works with a lot of journalists. How do you see that the work of a of a of a reporter evolving? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, similar to the general impact of OSINT um, and the kind of wealth of information online, I think it's certainly kind of diversified the news collection process. Just with our work at Tech Against Terrorism, news organizations are able to source information for stories uh, and find their scoops potentially without leaving their office or without talking to anyone. A number of major news um, outlets have their own kind of open source investigative departments um, and their reporting is kind of based on these investigations. I know, you know, New York Times and the BBC for sure um, have those. And I think the tech and content moderation space is a good example of this. Quite often, OSINT findings are picked up by news organizations for press reporting. So 
you know, trends in what terrorists or extremists are doing on social media platforms or shift in the behavior of ISIS in response to counterterrorism efforts on the internet. Likewise, you know, the tools like uh, CrowdTangle, um, which is a kind of open source research tool that uh, Meta bought, I'm not sure what year they bought it. It's great, great tools like that for journalists and researchers to get oversight um, on the spread of misinformation or extremist content uh, online. Um, that said, I think access to the tool has been fairly significantly limited in, in recent months. There is a risk here uh, that the kind of increasing adoption of um, OSINT in press reporting might risk leading to misinformation or potentially even disinformation. Um, you know, less reputable outputs might produce pieces based on content they found online uh, or in the public domain that isn't actually accurate. But I guess that's not much different to a dodgy source. So not sure. Arthur Bradley from Tech Against Terrorism in London. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. Thanks very much for having me. Pleasure. So, Peter, this was very interesting. Thea, I think that, you know, we learned a lot. I just have so many doubts about about this in in the specific issue is that we we understand and and we understand more after hearing from Arthur about how they collect information from every source and in and the way that you know that that information is gathered what is not clear and maybe we didn't dive so deeply into that is how it is analyzed how it is sifted for for truth and and how reliable it can be i can't imagine um a government relying on open source uh, intelligence only and and not even knowing that the information that they're collecting is is credible so i do believe that this is a a situation where tech is is moving faster than analysis and that that could pose some significant risk that's interesting muni i think it's a it's a, that's a very smart comment what hit me in this is what a misnomer their name is because they do a so much interesting work about sort of human rights abuses. And uh, I mean, you know, they mentioned Cameroon, they mentioned Russia, a lot, a lot of the anti-disinformation and discovery of human rights abuses, the investigations into far right-wing extremism. I think this is, this is, uh, it, it goes far beyond terrorism. It, it, it is a, it, it's a tool to really try to source. But as you say, once you source, how is there an editor? Is there somebody who says real, not real? I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I agree. And I think tech is moving way ahead of, of analysis, but also just of governance, right? I mean, who is at the end, where does the buck stop, right? And for me, that's unclear. And, um, you know, it's clearly something we've been Governments have fighting have been fighting about for for a while now with uh, with tech companies and um, not not sure where that where that's going and that that will be a very important point in uh, addressing that in before this goes uh, way beyond our control even more. So with that, we're running out of time. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. Sign up for our new bi-weekly free newsletter for analysis of global trends. We will see you next time.